Hello, hello, welcome once again to the A to Me. I am me, your host, and today we will be discussing the farming phenomenon, something that I feel like isn't discussed enough amongst black people in the UK. It affected thousands of black children. Um, you might have seen a film starring Damson Idris based on the life of Adewale Akinoye Abaje. I've probably butchered his name, but you would have seen him in The Mummy Returns, G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra, Thor The Dark World. Um, this also happened to the Fashionor brothers, um, obviously John Fashionor, famous for playing for AFC Wimbledon, and his brother Justin, who was the first openly gay footballer in the UK, who unfortunately took his life in 1998. So today I'm joined by Runke Ali Adofia. Yeah. Is that, was that correct? You did very well, don't worry. <laughs> um. Would you maybe want to give a little bit of a background to yourself for the listeners? Okay, so um, <laughs> I, I, I'm a product of um, being brought up by white parents. Um, I'm a community leader in the United Kingdom. I stand up for a lot of issues and most importantly about who we are as a people and self-importance and understanding of who you are so you know where you're going. So I'm an advocate for many um, issues and very happy to be on your show today, Amy. Thank you very much for coming on. So with most of my episodes, I like to kind of give a little bit of a historical background and then go into people's personal stories. So probably do the same right now. Um, The UK has a very interesting legacy when it comes to black children. Um, and it goes as far back as World War Two, and beyond then, where, you know, there was a legacy of soldiers, African-American soldiers or uh, West Indian sailors having biracial children of local women in port towns. So places like Liverpool, Bristol, um, Manchester, uh, parts of Wales, and then sort of leaving because obviously they, their job required them to do so. So that's left the legacy of, you know, children that could have potentially had identity crises based on their obvious blackness, but not having a very obvious or direct picture of where that blackness came from. And then we have, again, from the 50s going onwards, the farming situation, which I guess we can sort of break down into three different types of farming. So you'd have the nanny situation a foster situation and then an actual farming situation so would you like to sort of break that down for us yeah um see um so i'm a strong believer in on on, um uh, black people owning the narrative because when you look at the narrative it will determine how we perceive the phenomena that we're talking about and it's really interesting when we start talking about farming and uh, why that notion has been used so what i will explain is the notion of nannying, which is a process where um, somebody looks, a trusted person looks after your children for a period of time or looks after children for a period of time. And then fostering where people take responsibility for your children because there's something, um, uh, because the parents are not able to do that. Yeah. And um, this whole, these notions being associated 
with the bringing up of vulnerable, uh, uh, um, mostly West African children um, from the 60s, like you said, right up until the 2000s, were there. These notions were there so that their parents could continue to do the things that they needed to do. And many a time it was things like studying, because they had to study and work, as well as navigate um, the country in which they had come to. Uh, There's there's this great big surge of people that came in the 50s, the 60s, and obviously through the decades that followed. And they had to adjust and and they were having children. Life continued and they were having children. So the concept of farming is giving out your children which and then it's almost like you 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 breed children and you give them out which i am not a fan of that notion at all and maybe somebody's there to um uh, prove me wrong uh, the concept of fostering there were um informal um regulations if you like informal um arrangements for fostering and then there was nannying whereby the parents knew exactly what they were getting uh, they wanted um, 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 somebody who was available or families who were ava- available to look after children for a given period of time and they would keep in touch a lot of things happened in between those various concepts and a lot of things happened also during the period of during the length of these relationships Okay, okay. Thank you so, so much for that really great detailed breakdown. Um, So, from my research, I found that the first time this kind of arrangement was advertised was in 1955. In the 20 years since that point, over 6,000 black children were put into some sort of farming situation. Obviously, I've spoken about the film called Farming, starring Damson Idris, uh, about the life of Adewale Akinoye Abaje. Um, there's also another film called The Last Tree, which is, I think it's partly biographical. The screenwriter is Shola Amu or Shola Amo. Again, forgive me for ruining names, uh, particularly in the former, the film titled Farming. Uh, we see how it became a very negative and violent situation for Adewale. And for me, as someone that grew up in this country, when I was sort of discovering this history, I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of it before. I couldn't believe that it had never been brought up to me. It seemed like this very, very hidden thing. Um, Growing up in like this very open internet information era, I didn't think that something this big could be so hidden. And it's just, yeah, it seemed so, so crazy to me. The idea of black children being raised by white parents. It just, it just, for me, just looked like a recipe for disaster. Obviously, some parents had no option but to put their children in this situation. I can only imagine how unforgiving British society was in terms of seeing black families pop up in white Britain in that early period of the, you know, 50s, 60s. But at the same time, when I look over at our West Indian cousins and they don't seem to be as featured in this narrative and it seems to be a very predominantly West African thing, predominantly Nigerian thing, I sort of question how it all came about. Um, so I guess what I'd like from you now if you'd be willing to do so is to give us a recollection of your childhood but also when and how you became aware that you were in a situation like this 
Okay, thank you, Nee. So, um, I was born in the 60s and um, my mum and dad came over in the early 60s. Um, my mother um, went to school and she worked she worked for um, Midland Bank at the time and she worked there for um, throughout her, she built her career there. And my dad was studying to be a lawyer and he worked um, in the tax office. So they worked and studied. And when they came here, they lived in central London. They, they got a, um, a combination of rooms in the 60s and um, it was tight living. Now, in the early 60s, it wasn't a very pleasant place, but they got a place in a house that was owned by one of their friends. And um, uh, when I arrived, um, they, uh, my mum told me that, my mum told me that um, other parents had done this and they sought references and they were looking at families. And my mother uh, told me how she scrutinized the various applications um, to look after um, children and they went visiting these various homes and settled on this home in Essex and they were called Mr and Mrs Williams, Mr Thomas and Mrs Maud Williams and later on in my adult age I appreciated them more because what they did was a complete was completely against um, the little village in which they lived um, because I was the only black girl in the village and it was hard for them all right so my parents decided this was the parents they 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 had a lovely home a lovely home um, they were house proud people and they had a son an older son which I later realized wasn't Mr Williams's son um, but he grew up as his son. So I was there from four weeks. My ears were pierced when I was two weeks old. And then not too long after that, I was handed over to my mum in Essex. And then she drove away crying with my, with my dad. But they had to... Um, their dis what they dis what they felt they had to do at that time was to focus on their studies and work and there wasn't any room and space for a child and so there I am I grew up there um I like I said earlier I grew up thinking I had two mums and two dads and that's what everybody had and when I looked at people I felt don't you have another mom don't you have another dad and I had and then and, and Mr and Mrs Williams were they were older parents, so they were very patient. And when my brother arrived five years later, um, he was there as well. And then I had a number of cousins, two cousins as well. So we were all in this massive home, actually, massive home, massive garden, lots of area to play. So my first school was there. And Mr. Jenkins, who was the headmaster of this school, uh, I realized was very particular about us because Mrs. Williams was very particular about us and didn't want any um, racial issues to affect us. Now, at the time, I didn't know why I wasn't allowed to play out with everybody else. But I now understand because of some of the racial tensions that were in the area. Um, I grew up to um, 
seeing my mom and my dad every other week they will come down and my mother uh, my mother is a very beautiful woman she was very beautiful and she was very outwardly beautiful as well quite a, a woman quite a quite a stunner to be candid and she would smell beautifully I always remember when she would come she was she would fill the sitting room with her fragrance and she would come in um, with lots of chocolates uh, I suppose one of my problems today but she would come in with lots of chocolates and goodies and new outfits so we had lots of new clothes and lots of um we were really spoilt. When you look back, you realise how spoilt you were. You had this beautiful garden to play in with an aviary at the bottom, lots of pets, but we weren't allowed out. We were allowed to play at the alleyway, uh, which is riding our bikes from one end to another, but not beyond that. Um, so my 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 um, childhood was idyllic. Um, eventually, as we got older, we could go on our bikes and and, and ride a little further and pick blackberries and eat them and then come back. But we couldn't go too far. I now know it's not too far. And I've driven to Essex and seen the place now. When you're a child, it all looks so large, but it was a beautiful place. But what was key is that my parents came every other Saturday. And my dad would turn up, he was charming and articulate, had a lot to say, and we'll sit down there with Mr. Thomas Williams and have this chat about um, sometimes football and sometimes politics. So that's what I remember. Uh, some of the things that I remember in terms of school, like I said, I was very protected. And I went for, I remember this, I went for a beauty contest and I came second. So when you talk about acceptance, I was the novel child, if you like, but I was also elevated. The thing there as well is I was also taller than everybody else. So yes, I felt a little taller, a little um, different. In fact, a little different is not right. I felt very different. But it's ironic because when I went for the beauty contest, I came second. So somehow there was something about me being popular, but not me feeling completely accepted, if that makes sense. When it was time to go for swimming lessons, um, there were rules around, oh, um, Ronkey can't, and I'll come to my name as well. Uh, Ronky can't uh, take cream. You're not allowed to take cream. And that was a big issue. Why can't she take cream? Because our, our skin goes really ashy when you're in the pool. And so that was a big issue. And there were issues around drinking milk. And I hated milk. And I, uh, things about I, I, I would rather have orange juice. All kinds of things. But the, the, the peak thing there, the, really, thing, the really, really important thing that I now know was important was that my parents were there every other Saturday and they weren't just coming in and just going. They came in to spend the whole Saturday. So to look around, to see how we were kept. It wasn't that I was dressed up specially for that day. No, we were wearing our normal clothes. But because we all had all these fancy clothes, there was a lot. Now I know I had everything I wanted and my brother as well and um, lots of toys as well. Lots and lots of toys. So, um, yeah, maybe I was spoiled. Um, um, now, coming back to the name, I was called, my name is Ronke, like you said, okay, but I was called Ronke. And that was because the S sound seemed to be difficult for enunciation, which in all essence is not really, it's just an initial familiarity. If you familiarize yourself with the phonetics of a sound, you can pronounce it. But if you're lazy, and you give in, you end up with aberrations of what your name should be. So 
I was called Ronke, but I'll never forget my mother always telling me that my name is Adironke. And she will pronounce and write down my name fully. And in fact, my first day at school, the name that was on my name tag was my full name, which I didn't recognize as my name. And people were calling or trying to pronounce that name. And I felt upset. Why are people calling me a name that they're not that I'm not known as? So these are the kind of things that later on with the with the visits that my dad came, he he would explain to me. So I suppose I drew strength from my heritage through my dad and through my mother. My mother came with an afro. It wasn't some sleek scarf. She came with a, a big afro. And it was like, so how come your hair is an afro? Well, Ronki, when your hair grows, you can have that. That's the kind of thing. So there was a bridge, if you like. But there did come a time when, and then the other thing is that not only would they come, would my parents come every other weekend, my parents also took me away for holidays took us away so when it came to the school long long holiday we were whisked across because obviously my parents had taken leave and by that time my parents had gotten a bigger home a bigger house so there was space and so there became a time when we went for one of these holidays my 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 brother and I and um we had a nice time and all that and then when we go home you now get into the African, and, and sorry, I hate the word African. I'm talking about the Nigerian jollof rice and the fragrances and the house parties. And um, and uh, remember, I said that my mom's full of fragrance and all that. And there was, you know, and how she told me you never wear the same outfit once. <laughs> and she she would wear a different outfit every day of the month, you know. And how my dad um, said that you must always work. So there were lots of values there. And then when it came to the end of this particular um, holiday, um, I still remember this um, in the bedroom. And I thought we were getting ready. And I said to my mum, so when are we going back to mum's? You understand? I told you I had two mums. And she just coldly said, you're not going back. And that's when it dawned on me that what is going on? And by that time, I was already, um, I was already 11. You're not going back. Oh, sorry, I was um, 10, not 11. And so I started a new school and that new school was in London. It was in Newton Green, by the way. That's where we had a house, a lovely house. And um, starting a new school was tough. Because then the people that, whereas I was um, accepted my brother and I when we got to this new place it was like who do you think you are type of thing and and my hair was pulled I was picked upon by um by um somebody called Jackie Smith um a Jamaican girl who later became my friend (laughs) so um yeah, so I, I overall, I would say that um, the experience I had was idyllic, but there was something, and later on I've asked my mother this, why did she do that? Why was it all of a sudden? And what it was, what she told me was that the whole notion of nannying, that was the arrangement. They paid a lot of money on a weekly basis to these people who showed love and care to look after us. But there were so many stories, so many negative stories about what was happening to children who were in these homes. And there was a process of what they called 
fostering. They were, uh, they were formalizing the fostering and they were getting to a point where they were taking over the children, in my mother's words. So basically what was happening, there was some sort of arrangement whereby um, they had grounds that they could legally take custody of the children. And that is why, according to my mom and dad, um, why they decided that we were not going back there. So does that answer your questions, Nee? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, thank you for that. Um, your story is, is very, very interesting to me because it seems to be the other side of the coin. Like your recollection of events seem quite positive. And I guess I'd like to ask, do you feel that you were quite privileged in a sense um, in that I think people's experience of the farming phenomenon would be very, very influenced by the socioeconomic status of both the foster family and the real family. So this family in Essex sounds like, you know, an elderly couple, relatively wealthy, huge spaces for children to live in versus your parents who are, you know, working towards getting these very, very professional careers, but, you know, just, just unable to give you that space and that ability to have a proper childhood. So do you think compared to situations where, you know, people were ended up in, in very small confined spaces with lots of children in somewhere like the East End of London, how much do you think that your parents' socioeconomic status, and I mean both sets of parents, how much do you think that shielded you from what could have been the uglier side of farming? Yeah, yeah, because like um, obviously we've we've heard me and other people have heard so much about these these notions. So we we'll go back, and I went back to my mother. I've asked my mother several times what was behind it and what did she do? What were the things? And this whole notion of um, they had like my mother did the interviewing, so they scouted around. Um, um, they put an advert out, and they had a lot of people coming in, and she. Um, um, she went with referees and they looked at that and she said they chose Mr and Mrs Williams it wasn't as if they had to go with that person they chose um, and um, and I think this is the important bit um, my mum and dad felt they were in control even though that um, they had schooling and all that kind of stuff to deal with but they were in control in terms of who they were going to um, leave their children with that's one secondly they monitored they had the power and the capacity and the inclination I think this is important to monitor so they were there regularly there wasn't a time where um, I didn't see my mom and dad for a while like I said I just thought I had two, two parents um, and that was it. That's what I saw as normal. So they monitored. And, and, and fast forward, when I speak to my mother about this, she said, yeah, yeah, they have to make sure. They, they, their expression, she said she doesn't want her children losing out who they are. Do you see what I mean? So that was really important to my mom and my dad, my mother especially in terms of the naming and my dad in terms of reinforcing that. So, um, in terms of, and yeah, there will be, there will be gaps and there are gaps. And I can tell you a few gaps where, um, Mr. and Mrs. Williams didn't fully understand. And I can, I can compare my experience to my cousins who were not as, who were not monitors as closely as my parents monitored 
these Mr. and Mrs. Williams. So I do have a fond spot. And Mrs. Williams died two years ago, two, three years ago, um, um, 90 years. And we were there at the funeral. Mr. Williams had died a long time ago. and My dad came over to um, be at that funeral. And at no point, and this is this is this is the dichotomy. At no point did I want to be white, or did I see myself as anything but wrong case? If that makes any sense, it didn't occur to me that yes, I'm black. How can I be of white parents? That just didn't come into my psyche. It's just so interesting to hear you speak on it. Um, so with your parents, they kept their you know they kept their hands on the driving wheel at all times when it came to this situation and it's just really interesting because when the way this is documented when i look at things and i'm reading about this whole situation it's a very specifically west african issue um i'm sure there were issues for west indian children like things like you know subnormal schools but for the most part they seem to stay with their families um there might have been a lot of west indian or british born west indians that were put into the care system in particular times in within the 50s to the 60s but the farming phenomenon isn't isn't something they seem to do on mass collectively so i was wondering for what reason do you think some parents wouldn't have taken the same approach as your parents did where they wouldn't have monitored as closely where they would have just left their child to the whims of this new white family and do you think potentially there was any sort of desire for an assimilation process to occur um, by a proxy of living with this white family for some Nigerian parents that chose to put their children in these situations? Or do you think it was mostly just desperation? Yeah, yeah, I can answer the question because you need to put it into context. In the 60s, when my parents were doing this, I came over. Um, at that point, um, there was a great surge. Like you said, right from 1955, there was this great big surge. We talk about the Windrush, we talk about all the people that were coming over. So all the people that were settled... Uh, so everybody was coming over for something they wanted. They, they either had jobs or they wanted education. It's one of the two. And um, so the people that were settled were more often than not were the white people, were the English people, were the indigenous, yes? And the people that applied, in my parents' case, who applied to uh, do this uh, work, um, I can only talk about my experience, obviously, were people who were in a position to do that. Now, there are the people that wanted to exploit. They were only looking for the money because it wasn't cheap. It was a lot of money. Um, so there's that. And then you think about, at that time, this was... Um, so um, Nigeria, when, by the time I had come over, Nigeria had just been... Um, Nigeria had um, re had um, they they'd got their independence in the 60s, yeah. So there was still this notion of the motherland, and everything from the motherland was superior. Everything was the motherland was the light of um, the place that you need to go through, and everything was defined through that of the motherland. So it's a natural flow of people wanting to do things through that route as defined by the motherland which is a white person it's not it's not right so there's that you know everybody you, you can even talk to people today oh why do we black people behave like this why do we do no excuse me let's look at the goods you know is the narrative and that's why right at the outset when we're looking at the narrative of how we describe this phenomena we need to question why we use the term farming are we using it or somebody's well, describing it to us as farming? 
Why are we using the terminology fostering? Is it because some parents and their reasons, and I can go into that separately, it's not my experience, but I do have people who have been through it, why the notion of fostering came into it. When people had homes or they didn't have homes, they put their children in places, they thought they could go and see them, they couldn't go and see them for whatever reasons, relationships broke down, so they didn't have that steady background so that they could go and see children, children became a, a, a more of a burden. So a lots of a lot of a lot of scenarios like that. The educational route that they were going down wasn't as smooth or as resilient as they wanted it to be. And so parents became missing, if you like, missing in action. And then when parents didn't turn up, payments weren't being made. Yeah. Um, things happened to the people, uh, both the child and the uh, carer, carer, carer parent, or if you like. Yes. But when you talk about nannying and every time we talk about nannying, it's like um, you speak to some of the foster parents today. It seems like, well, fostering sounds nicer than nanny. Well, actually, no. If you're paying for a service to look after my child, what is that? You're an, you're a nanny outside the home. Um, I'm paying you or parents are paying you a pretty penny for that. Um, for a service to look after my child, to make sure they go to school, make sure they're fed, make sure, you know, you, you put them through. Now, um, there were issues of finance and not all parents were able to keep the payments up. And you will find when you explore this a little bit more, you will find that that was a big issue in terms of the negligence. I'm not going to say negligence, the inability, should I say, of parents not to fulfill their fulfill their um what you, their responsibilities so i've seen a lot of that as well um and so we were not abused in any way shape in fact we were, like i said before we were spoiled there were things about so how do i manage my hair yeah what do i do about my hair and um mrs williams had to um you know when you tie your hair in thread and she used to lay it down quite it, 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 it's funny. It's, it's just a funny thing. And growing up, I believed I should have hair that is flowing. How about that? Flowing as opposed to hair that grows out. But every time I saw my mom, I remember she smelt. My, 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 mother, my mother was a stunner. So she would walk around with these high heel shoes. I don't know whether she did it on purpose to inspire. I don't know. But the impact was that. She'd come out of the car, uh, she'd walk on her platform shoes, because platform shoes were trendy then, she'd have this afro, she'd have her face done, and my dad would be behind her, pushing, you know, holding her arm, and they would come in like some glamour, <laughs> glamour people. So I felt, well, if my hair is not going to um, grow down and flowy, it was going to grow like my mom's. And my mom's a stunner, so I would be a stunner. It's very interesting to hear how affirmed you were, um, especially when I compare it to my own experience. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white area and, you know, I had insecurities about phenotypical things that attached to blackness on so my hair, my nose, my lips, um, even the actual color of my skin um, at certain times when I've, I've spoken about how I felt when I saw everyone coloring themselves the same color in primary school and I wasn't able to do that. 
and how it made me feel about myself. And it's very interesting to hear how affirmed you were, given the fact that you lived in this household with two white parents. Um, you know, I, for me, whiteness was never inside my household. It was always outside. And it's interesting to hear that someone that grew up, grew up when you grew up in the 60s, with whiteness in the household and outside of the household and how you still manage to feel very affirmed in your blackness and Nigerian. So it's very, very interesting to hear. Um, and it's interesting to hear you say the term motherland because I've had a similar interview conversation with my dad in my second episode and I asked him about that motherland thing because the only time I've heard it is from West Indians when they speak of how and why they were convinced to come to the UK. It was the mother country. Um, and I asked my dad, was the same ter terminology sort of used in Ghana? And in, to his knowledge, he said no. But there was this aspiration of going to the UK because the idea of the white man um, having a better life and more opportunity. And if you go there and then come back to Ghana, you'd be able to live a life that was enriched purely because of the fact that you've been to, the, to England, to UK. But in terms of verbiage, in terms of language, that mother country, motherland terminology wasn't used so like maybe could you give a could you give some background on that motherland term and what it meant from your context from the nigerian context at that particular time period so i'm going to go back to um looking at photographs of my parents leaving nigeria from a papa wolf and they all dressed up they were it was it was a big show and there is my mum, my dad, all dressed up. And I don't know how much you know about Nigerian outfits. They all wore the same outfits. And it was a big pomp and pageantry, pageant, pageantry affair. And my dad, after finishing from, he went to very good school with my mum. And um, they worked, my mother, my dad worked in um, First Bank in Lagos. And then the next step was to go on to do law in the United Kingdom. And that was the step that all of his classmates, or most, if you didn't do it, there's something wrong with you, they, they took that route. So it was a natural step. And it's almost like um, um, a step of, um, the, the, a, a, a next step of achieving what you wanted to achieve. And we were going, they were going to the place that had, they were going to the motherland. They were going to the place that had provided. Remember, this is a notion then. They were going to a place that had provided them direction, that had stuff that was good, that was right for them, where they were going to um, achieve um, a step to their aspirations. It was a necessary step. Um, obviously, when they reached here, it was a different. It was a different story. But yeah, that was it. So, um, and my grandmother. Because I remember speaking to my grandmother, and she said, and she said in Yoruba how it was when they when they see when when they both saw my parents off, what it was like. Ah, they in 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 our in a traditional language, they would say, "Oh, they're going to the white man's place. It's going to be good." So there was all that land of hope, if you like, and yeah, it was called the motherland. But obviously, um, because my dad is a political, uh, may he so rest in peace, but dad was a political animal. And very quickly, both my mother, very quickly, it's like, actually, we are who we are. We need to ascertain who we are. And therefore, um, my name. Another thing that's come up is, uh, um, oh, don't you have an English name? You know, so they named us, my parents named us proper Nigerian names. You know, there's no Englishy name and you don't English, you don't anglicize the names as well. Well, not much anyway. That's our name. 
you know they didn't they weren't into all that so very quickly they um they were very clear about establishing who they are if that makes any sense so yes they came to a motherland because they felt that the infrastructure was there to deliver um the university education that they needed um but I think that's as far as it went because by the time they but by the time my dad by the time my parents um by the time they left there were many things that they said they they're the ones who introduced me to fella ran you know fella Anikola Pukuti, for example you need to listen to this you need to understand this you need to hear this music type of thing so um yeah in the time in that in those times it was it was part of the narrative you go to the motherland so it was the narrative it's not the narrative at the moment and i think when we're talking about this um farming fostering um nannying um the notion of it in the 80s and 90s that very notion of what it is um, is completely different. And that sense of who your child is, it was more of not liking yourself, who you are, not accepting who you are, and then, and, and then, um, and, and then allowing your child to pick up that. So there are many people of my age group, perhaps, and younger, who will never accept that they are Nigerian or everything Nigerian. If they want to say anything Nigerian, you you find it being followed with negative adjectives. It's very interesting because, you know, I look at this time period in particular, like this, you know, from the 50s through to the 80s. And, you know, I would feel as though within the context of African nations, there should have been this buzz because there was this, you know, the the post-colonial movement, the movement for liberation, the movement for um, independence across, across the continent from these um, colonial powers. It must have given this sense of pride to many nations. But at the same time, it didn't doesn't seem to have been enough um to hold them because like when i like when i look at my dad and i look at the time frame from which ghana gained independence and the time he came to the uk there's not much time at all so that there must have still been that inkling of white is right white is better even though we've had all these transformative leaders you know Nkrumah, Lumumba, like Thomas Sankara all these people that would have influenced Africans perspective on themselves and the pride in their national identity their cultural identities but maybe I was thinking, perhaps, is there anything specifically Nigerian, do you think, that affected this um, negative outlook going forward, you know, with things like the Biafran War and then um, suppression of certain histories? Do you think that that had any potential effect on why in the 80s to the 2000s, where there might have been a more white is right attitude with these people putting their children in this farming situation yeah you're making sense and you're obviously putting a particular view forward but the reason is really simple and staring us it's like the elephant in the room it's called um colonialism and and the colonialism of the british um of the british was um around um um Sorry, the word has gone out of my head now. But it was around, um, we are better than you. And so the whole notion is that everything that is African and Nigeria 
is negative, it's not great, at best. <laughs> and everything that is British is superior. So you and, and it was couched in um um religion as well. So you find that um I will pronounce your name Richard. Oh no, I pronounce your name Samantha very easily, but you wouldn't be able to pronounce Uluwatobi. Do you see what I mean? Which is a, a Yoruba name. So um, it's the whole, and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you accept it? So if, um, it, when you're dealing with colonialism and you, you, many years, how many years of colonialism, it's not going to just shift after independence, a couple of years, people will still say, oh, the white man's thing is better. In fact, even when we're speaking today, you find that, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's better that way. Of course it's not. So, um, I mean, this conversation has made me explore some of the things I I ask myself, where do I get my own strengths from? And obviously it's from what my parents put out there. And I ask, where did they get their strengths from? You know, they weren't perfect, but where did they get it from? My children don't have um, English names. Why? Why on earth would somebody ask, do you have an English name? Why? Am I English? Why would I have an English name? And then it's also dressed up, uh, what's your Christian name? What do you mean, what's my Christian name? If I give you Uluwatobi, which is a Christian name, I, I, it's not going to be Jokas or James or something. So this whole notion of not being able to view yourself as something beautiful, my skin is dark brown, it's beautiful, it's, it's glossy, it's beautiful, my hair is curly, it's lovely. The adjectives that we know and build on need to build positively on who we are. But to shed that colonial cloak is not something that happens in a couple of years or two years or not even generation. And I was speaking to a colleague today who said, talking about something else, but it takes four generations to shed certain notions. And when you think about it, most of the generations that we have here, West African generations, are two or three. Um, so we've got to have a whole wave of people who shed that negativity and start thinking of themselves from positive adjectives, in fact, um, and not um, be influenced unduly by things that we see in the media. So we think of Africa, you think of corruption. Why? Think of one word and the adjective that quickly comes to your mind is negative. We need to shed all that. So you think of Africa, you think of richness. You think of Africa, you think of food. You think of Africa, you think of perfumes and scents or something. I'm just giving you an example. But these are things that will happen over the uh, generations, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was last in Ghana in 2016, and I remember having a conversation with an auntie. And this is someone that's you know quite well-to-do. She's You, you put her in the, the middle class, the bourgeoisie, and, and, and she's living in Accra, so the capital of Ghana. And she basically said to me that black people, black Africans, just can't handle democracy. We have to be told what to do. You know, this infantilization of us as a people. And it was just heartbreaking to sort of see how deep-seated this anti-black colonial indoctrination still runs a good 60 years past the point of independence. And... It, yeah, it was quite heartbreaking to hear, especially from someone of her status. But I think that is probably a case for quite a few people, more people than we would like to admit. And when I even think about myself and my knowledge base that I have today, um, you know, it all came during my 
degree when I started studying my degree and you know it wasn't I wasn't dealing with concepts of blackness in a meaningful way until I was you know 2021 and you know that's that, that, that's partly on my own decision making and my own fault but I do think there is this push for us to not have particular knowledge I think some histories are hidden some histories just aren't sought out but with this farming phenomenon I do feel like it's a history that was semi-hidden at least so what do you think drives that and how do you think we change it and make this a more open honest narrative that people are willing to come out with so it's not the knowledge it's a narrative it's a language it's power so when we spoke when we spoke about black lives matter for a long time people didn't speak about what is called white privilege and all of a sudden, just having that expression, white privilege, allowed discussions to be had in various organizations. As difficult as it may seem, there was the language to be able to have the conversation. So uh, with this um, concept, the farming, the fostering, the, the, the nannying, it is having the, having the language to be able to describe it. So I've just described what I went through. And more than happy to have a conversation uh, with other people. And they will, they will be able to share their views, first of all, in a safe space. But we've got to allow it. So it's and, and, and through the conversations, people will understand the narrative and absorb the narrative and have a broader conversation. And then there will be um, an understanding. But we've got to have the conversations. And like I said before, there are these conversations that have actually happened. Now, I'm always very, very mindful of when people portray certain phenomena negatively and I want to ask myself the question why what's the purpose of that is it to make the individual that went through that process smaller still and if you make the people who 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 went through this who are uh, West African children in the main or if there are others smaller still what are you doing for the generation so we've got to turn that tide in, and I'm not saying we paint it glowingly, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying they've got to find the power to be able to, this, the people that have survived it and that are strengthened by it, they've got to find the power and the language and the, and, and the ability to have the conversations whereby they've come out of it stronger and so that that ripple effect strengthens a group of people. And the more they're strengthened, the more conversation that we'll be having. At the moment, it's all the negative which is destroying a generation of people. And therefore, they're not talking about it. And what's the wider impact of that? That whole generation is gone because they can't inspire others. So um, what is stopping people from talking is finding the safe spaces to start off with, through the safe spaces to talk about their experiences, to find that bit that has strengthened them, that has kept them going, that um, that makes them who they are. And I'm not saying they're necessarily pleasant experiences, but something has strengthened them. Yes. And then from those conversations to broaden the narrative, because people will now form the language and allow other people to be able to speak about it. And people come out stronger. That way you have a wave of people who are strong, who went through this process, as opposed to a group of people who are weakened and out and gone. I think that's a really good place to close. So I want to thank you for coming on. And I want to thank the listeners for listening. 
This is the A to Knee. If anyone has a story or experience that they want to share, please feel free to reach out to me. My Twitter is at Knee Tweeted and we can set something up and record on any topic that you think would be useful and suit this platform. So yeah, once again, thank you, Runke, for coming on. Greatly appreciate all your wisdom and all your anecdotes. Thank you very much. Once again, this is the A to Knee and this is Knee signing out. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.